0: If you have your Bible open up, First Timothy chapter three, as you just heard, we're going to be studying verses fourteen through sixteen today. Paul and Timothy are a very unlikely pair that show up in much of your New Testament. I mean, Paul—we have a, actually a physical description of him that was written around the one year, one fifty. So we know that he was short, he was stout, he was bow-legged. He had a, a a long nose and a unibrow. He was uh, an imprisoner, a persecutor, and a murderer of Christians. Uh, he was a Pharisee, so he was a member of the religious sect. You remember that rallied for the murder of Jesus Christ, and this was the first thirty years of Paul's life. Timothy is young he's uneducated, he is inexperienced, he is timid, and he suffers, we believe, from gastric problems. I mean, Paul and Timothy are a very unlikely pair. And yet, Paul was the most influential person in the early church. You could make a case to say that after Jesus has ascended to heaven that Paul was the most influential person on the entire planet. In your New Testament, you have 27 books, and Paul wrote 13 of these books. And then you have Timothy, who despite being young and uneducated and inexperienced and timid, Paul puts Timothy in this position Where he is to lead one of the largest churches in the world at the time in this great city of Ephesus, which was a large city. It was spiritually dark and it was influential. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Had a population of more than 225,000 people. And Timothy is pastor of the church that is meeting and gathering in Ephesus. Okay, this is the the place where, because it was a, a port city, so you had everything coming in, you had trade coming in, you had commerce coming in. From Ephesus, there was an interior road that led in further to Asia, as well as the main road, north and south, that went along the coastline. So everyone is coming in and through Ephesus. So cultural trends begin in Ephesus. Innovation is beginning in Ephesus. So it's the kind of place where everyone wants to live, or maybe where people dream of living. Not so different from today Places like New York City or San Francisco. No one grows up today with dreams of moving to Albuquerque. Right? San Francisco, New York City. I mean, that's why on New Year's Eve when you watch the ball drop, that's not taking place in Omaha. That's taking place in New York City. That's why people in South Dakota just started using MySpace. Because places that are are located, okay, on the sea, right end up being places where culture begins and moves inward. It begins to be the place where innovation starts and moves inward. So, this is where people want to be. And this is why Ephesus is such a large city, influential. And and yet, the influences that are coming in and through are are not interested in Christ. So it's no wonder that, that Paul writes these pair of letters to Timothy who's pastoring there. And he's writing to Timothy helping him to set his course and set the course of his church. Which is to honor God. If you're a Christian, okay, the charge given you by God and the help given you by His Holy Spirit and His Holy Word is to bring honor and glory to God. And anything and everything else you do as a Christian is subordinate to that. To honor and glorify God. But here is Timothy in a place and in a context that is not helpful to that end. So today we're going to look at these, uh, just these three verses. A very simple message where Paul is going to remind Timothy of something, to remind us of something, simply this, what what is our identity? As Christians, as believers, as members of the church, what is our identity? What does that mean? And what is our message? Let's pray. We need God's Word. We need the help of His Holy Spirit. Let's call on that. Our Father in Heaven, We thank You for gathering us together today with such great purpose. We thank You for giving us Your holy Word. Thank You, Father, that we have in our hands today revelation from You. Thank You for leaving us with Your Holy Spirit that we may understand things that otherwise we would not understand, that are only spiritually discerned. Thank You for giving us a place to meet. Thank You for bringing people who love You, desire to serve You and honor You. Thank You for bringing people in our midst who do not know You, who do not yet love You, that they may hear Your truth proclaimed and we pray that they would hear Your truth proclaimed coupled with the power of Your Holy Spirit awakening them to hear and believe this truth. God, as we look today at this mystery of godliness, will You please remind us of the treasure that is the Gospel? May we not grow cold to the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. For those of us who have been in your church for a long time, for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, who have heard sermon upon sermon, who have been to Sunday school class upon Sunday school class, who have been to meeting after meeting and gathering after gathering, who have read through our Bible over and over and over again, God, help us. To not take something that we have heard over and over and over again and have it become routine or, or mundane or useless to us. Keep us from becoming inoculated to Your Gospel. So remind us now so that we would not just hear this truth and check out because we've heard this before, but would You bring Your hammer again and nail this truth into our heads and into our hearts. That we would behave in your household the way you, father, want us to behave. So we ask these things in the great and precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 1st well, Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 16. Now the first thing we're going to look at just two headings today, our identity verses 14 and 15 as Christians, and then our message, verse 16, as Christians. Paul says this to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So Paul is telling Timothy, remember Timothy is like a son to him. Timothy is, is is to Paul as the beloved disciple John was to Jesus. And so, Paul says, I want to come to you. I want to, I want to see you. I want to help you. There's some things I'd like to do in person and talk to you about in person. But I, I'm going to be delayed, I suspect. So, if I delay, I want to write this to you. Okay, so he gives his purpose here. So, I'm going to write these words to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So why is Paul writing these things? Paul says, I am writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave. That's interesting. He's writing to Timothy and his church because there's some behavior issues. You are not behaving well. And so the reason I'm writing to you is I can't get to you quick enough and preach this sermon and teach this class. So I'm writing these things to you so that you will know how to behave. And of course, the implication is, and you will behave differently. Differently. Bring honor and glory to God. And then he identifies his audience in a a unique way. Who is it that he's writing to? Where is it that he's concerned about behavior? Is it outside the church or is it inside the church? We can get preoccupied today with becoming overly concerned with how people outside the church behave and not paying due concern to how people in the church behave. the admonishment from Scripture is to Christians primarily. Those of you who know Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit, who have the Word of God, you are without excuse. There's no, well, I don't know what God's Word says. There's, There's no, well, I don't have the power to overcome sin. No, 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 no. You have God's Word and you have God's Spirit that you may walk in the Spirit and no longer according to the flesh. So there is no excuse for us in the church. That is where Paul is looking for a change in behavior. But listen, he says three things to define this church that is in Ephesus and to define us today. As believers, as Christians, he uses three phrases. The first one is we are the household of God. when we talk about us being a family, when we talk about the church, capital C, global and timeless, being a family, or we talk about the church, Veritas, lowercase c, a local expression of that church, we talk about us being a family. This isn't just some sentimental metaphor that we have conjured up to try to get us to be nice and kind to one another. This is a biblical description of who we are. We are a family. We are God's household. The household of who? The household of God. That means who is the father? Who is the head of this house? Dads, maybe you have whipped that out at times with your family. right? When you're not getting the the obedience and the respect that you expect and you've said something along the lines of, I am the head of this household. Or, you will abide by my rules and behave in this way as long as you are in my household, as long as you are under my roof. Which is a totally appropriate thing for the head of a household to tell his family. So if we are a household, Paul is telling us that the father, the head of our household, is God. And God likewise says there is behavior that is acceptable in my house and there is behavior that is unacceptable in my house. Right? if you have children, you know that you do this all the time. This is acceptable, son, daughter. This is not acceptable. This is appropriate. This is inappropriate. Yes, you may do this. That's great. No, you may not build a zip line into the swimming pool. No, you may not capture and breed possums. These are all true. My house. No, you may not uh, resolve conflict with violence. No, you may not raise your voice with your mother or with your father. No, you may not allow all of these noises to come out of your body in front of your mother. No, you may not speak to your brother or to your parents this way. Right? We say there is, there is behavior as long as you are in this household. There is behavior that is unacceptable and there's behavior that is acceptable and so. Paul is driving at that and saying we are members of the household of God. And I'm writing to you so that you know how to behave in God's family. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we are God's adopted sons and daughters, Christians. He gets more specific. Or says it in another way, we are the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He says we are the church, we are the ecclesia, is the Greek word. We are the assembly, as Curtis prayed today. We are the gathering of God's people. But he says specifically, as he's going to ask for change in behavior Those who remember the household of God, remember that you are also members of the church of the living God. This is said over and over and over again in Scripture that we serve and we believe in, we are under a living God. 2 Corinthians 6.16 What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, the world in large part decided long ago that God was dead. And what has been happening since is people are just walking around simply reinventing God coming up with our own ideas of, of who God is and, and how God thinks of me. And of course, God always thinks very highly of me. And God's this God that is conjured up has very low standards. He's sort of like the administrator in a junior college. Anything gets you in, basically. And God's standards, while being low, also, I'm actually very good and very righteous. So... You put God's low standards together and my high quality of character, and there's no longer any issues between me and God. And so we've just dissolved what the greatest problem of humanity is, and that is that we are sinners underneath the wrath of God. But we've just invented a God that that doesn't have a problem with us anymore. Okay, so here's what Paul is saying. God is not dead. We serve a living God. We worship and believe and follow and obey and behave in such a way because our God is a living God. He is alive. He is active. He is, another implication is that He is present here with us. When we gather together to worship Him, He is present in an even More significant way. It means that we are not a depressed people. We are not a depressed people. As if God were dead. Or as if God had abandoned us. Or as if we were on our own. As Christians, loneliness is something we will never, ever, for all eternity experience. So we are, because God is a living God, this is the source of great joy. This is why it is so sad, right? When the church gets characterized as being a, a depressed people. You, you know Christians like this. You, you are perhaps a Christian like this. And you share this message of joy and hope and then there's no joy or hope in your life. I just want to share with you that Jesus Christ is the source of all my joy. And you wonder why I have this joy, joy, joy down in my heart. It's because of the living God. No! We are and should be the happiest of all all people in spite of circumstances i mean we can have the worst circumstances we can have hebrews 11 kind of circumstances we can be sawn in two we can have persecution upon us we can have strife upon us we can have conflict upon us we can be abandoned by everybody and we can still be a happy people because we have joy which is not rooted in circumstance but in the fact that we serve a living god our God is not dead. Martin Luther, his wife, Katerina von Bora. There's this great story. Some of you have heard it before. There was a season where, 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 where Luther was in this just prolonged season of depression. And he was just somber all the time. And so one day he comes home from work and his wife greets him at the door. And Katerina is wearing her, her mourning Clothes. Now, we, we most of us don't have mourning clothes, but she would—it would be typical for you to have clothes that that you would wear that when when there was a something sorrowful or something to mourn or the loss of a loved one, you would you would wear this clothing to signify your your mourning and your sadness over what's taken place. And so she greets him at the door, and she's wearing just you know her clothes of mourning. And he looks at her and he says, "Well, who?" Who died? And her response to him was, well, the way you've been walking around just depressed and depressed and depressed. I assumed that God was dead. (laughs) Wow! That was a wonderful wife. You Think that snapped him out? What was she telling him? You serve a living God. Why are you moping around? Why are you crying and whining and complaining and discontent and depressed? You need to be awakened to the fact that you serve a living God who loves you and is here and who is leading. So the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And it gets more specific in defining this church that we are all a part of, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And this is what he's saying. He's saying that the church... What is the role here of the church? The church supports the truth by promoting the truth and by protecting the truth. So to to make a, a, a note here, the church is not the foundation for the church. And the, 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 for the truth. And the church does not establish truth. So some of you, if you have the... I think it's the New International Version, and it can be confusing. It uses the word foundation. But that's not a good understanding. But the truth does not get its significance and its weight from the church. It gets its weight and significance because it is the Word of God. And so the church is not the foundation of this truth. This truth did not come from the church. This truth came from God to the church. And the church is not somehow the foundation of the truth. The truth is the foundation of the church. And the church is built on the truth. Which is why Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What is he saying? It's built on the words of the apostles and the prophets. It is built on the Word of God. The truth of God. We do not, as the church, establish what truth is and what truth is not. God's Word establishes truth. And so our role as the church, according to Paul here, is that we are the pillar and the buttress of God's word, of his truth. So we are, the metaphor pillar, was significant at this time because in the city of Ephesus, this was a place where almost anywhere you were in the city, you could look up and you would see pillars. Specifically, there was the great temple of, of Diana. There's a Greek called this goddess Artemis. And she was worshipped in Ephesus. And they built this temple to her on a hill that was one of the seven wonders of the world. And the top of this temple was this enormous roof made of marble. And the roof was held up by 100 pillars that were 60 feet high, I mean, this was an amazing spectacle in this city. And so Paul says, okay, that's the context. So Paul tells them that the church, you are the pillar of the truth. In other words, what is on display? Not this marble roof that's on display. God's Word, God's truth is on display. And the church are those pillars that are supporting and holding up this truth for the world to see. So we're supporting God's truth by promoting God's truth. John Stott puts it this way. Just as those pillars held up that massive roof, so the church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen and admired by the world. The church's function is to display truth. is why we sing songs full of truth. This is why we pray. When we pray, we pray full of truth. And it's why when we preach, we preach truth. It's why, hopefully, when we fellowship with one another, we're exchanging words of truth. Because God has said, My church, my household, you are a pillar of the truth you are to support and to hold out the truth for the world to see ephesians 3:10 so that through the church the manifold wisdom of god might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places so the church is supporting the truth by presenting it faithfully to its members and to the world but as well, he says that truth, the church not only is a pillar of the truth, supporting and promoting and holding it out, but is a buttress of the truth. Have you ever seen a wall that, that has a projecting wall of, of stone or brick that is held up against that wall? These are buttresses that are meant to hold the wall up, to support the wall, specifically to usually to defend Defend from enemies that would want to make it through or over this wall. And so you have buttresses. Or if you have a a fence that is leaning or is falling down, you might take a two by four, right? And you might press it into the fence and into the ground. And what do you do? You're making a, a buttress so that the fence does not fall down. And so Paul says that the church of the living God, the household of God, you're holding the truth out for the world to see as a pillar, but you are also a buttress. Of the truth. You are also supporting the truth. You are also guarding the truth and protecting the truth. So we're not only as a church promoting truth, but we are protecting and defending. God's truth. And so the church holds up the gospel before a watching world, and the church defends the gospel from attack. And this is the responsibility of the church according to God's word. So that has significant implications if you think about it. That means that when we decide how we're going to order and organize ourselves as a church and what is going to be the content of our worship services and and what our ministries are going to look like. And if we have programs, what our programs are going to look like and, and what our leadership structure will be and what our time together is going to be characterized by. It means that we've got to remember that we are here to promote and protect the truth. We cannot compromise on that. That also means that this is not the role of any other organization. This is the role of the church. I say that because there are today organizations that are built and put together who have taken it upon themselves to be promoters of the truth. But we need to be careful how much time we invest in means that seem good and seem right if they are disconnected from God's church. Because it is God's church that is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Not a parachurch organization. It is the church that is to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. So rather than the church, for example, figuring out how it can support various organizations to promote and protect the truth, organizations should be figuring out how they can serve the church to promote and to protect the truth of God. Because God says this is the church's role. So... Paul, to just summarize so far, so Paul is writing to Timothy and writing to his church. Paul is writing this letter to God's family, right? Those who are responsible to promote and protect the truth so that they may know how they ought to behave. Remember, that's what Paul is after. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may know how one ought to behave. But isn't his letter then maybe not what you would expect? I mean, if this is what Paul is after, what? why wouldn't he just give a list of acceptable and unacceptable behaviors? I mean, that's my temptation. If I'm not happy with behavior, you know, from my kids and in my home, I want to start rattling off rules. Hey, do I need to remind you? These are the do's and these are the don'ts. I mean, if that is Paul's purpose and if he is writing so that people would know how they ought to behave, then why don't we have that? Why doesn't he just give a laundry list and say, listen, these are the things that you should do and these are the things that you should not do. Here is an, ex- is an exhaustive list of conduct that is unbecoming of a Christian. Okay, but here's the deal. Paul is after more than behavior modification. Listen, God is after more than behavior modification. Jesus, head of this church, is not interested in slight, external, superficial conformity. Anyone and everyone can do slight, external, superficial conformity. You can play the part. You can clean up yourself on the outside, your conduct, your behavior, your words. You can abide by the list of do's and don'ts. And you can do that externally in slight and superficial ways. And you can do that With common grace, you don't even need the Holy Spirit indwelling in you to live that kind of a life. That is why there are some, Matthew 7 talks about this, who come to Jesus right after living their life and they've got their bags ready and they're packed. And they're expecting Jesus to open the door and for him to welcome them into the big, big house with on and on. They're ready to go and Jesus looks at them and says, depart from me. And they say, no, 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 you you made a mistake. You know, check the roll call again. We're here. And what do they start doing? They rattle off all the things that they did. The slight, external, superficial conformity. Look at our behavior. We did all the right things. And what is his response? Depart from me. Okay. In, In spite of all these things that you did on the outside... I don't know you. So there was no reconciliation. There was no relationship. There was no internal change. Paul, clearly on behalf of God, is after total heart transformation, which will then manifest itself in changed behavior, which will then result in God being glorified. You see the total difference. I mean, we can come and we can play the part. And we can promote, overly promote behavior changes. And we can end up being a body of people who are like the Pharisees, who are whitewashed tombs. And you look so pretty. I mean, you've got your Sunday best. You know, you're giving faithfully money to the church. You're memorizing a Bible verse a week. You're a faithful member in attendance. You're praying the right things. You're saying the right things. But inside, dead bones. These were the Pharisees. This is why Paul doesn't just list off the do's and the don'ts. What must happen first is an internal, invisible change. This is why rather than preaching behavior modification or moral conformity, what are we preaching? We're preaching the Gospel. We're preaching the Gospel because when you believe the Gospel... Okay, That means that there has been a dramatic change, transformation in your heart. So what we're after is an internal, invisible change. And when there is an internal, invisible change in you, the behavior is going to change. The behavior is going to change. So if someone comes to me and they're addicted to alcohol, and they're addicted to drugs, and they're addicted to sex, or they're living a homosexual lifestyle, my first priority is not to get them to stop being gay. My priority is to tell them the gospel. To proclaim to them the truth. Because incidentally, the only way anything is ever going to change is if their heart changes. Now, if I skip that, because I just want them to look different, and I bring them into a church that just preaches every week five steps to a better you, and raising a rated G kid, and a rated R world, and here's your ten steps you can check off your list this week, and feel better when you come back next week, and this and that. And I keep giving people things they can do, then that person I skipped the Gospel with lives their whole life. My behavior looks right. Doing things differently. And then they show up in Heaven and Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from Me. This is why when we are under the preaching of the Word of God, we should be commanded to do things that we are totally unable to do. I will not give you application that you are able to do, Ever. It will always be totally impossible in and of yourself. But with God, all things are possible. So if you're sent home with a list of things that you can do on your own, then guess what happens? You come next week proud. Not only proud, but unreliant on God. And then I give you another list. I mean, who's not going to go to that service? I mean, this is sweet. Man, I must be. I'm getting sanctified. I'm going to testify. I mean, every week, just this and this and this, and I quit this, and I quit that, and I quit this. So we tell you to do impossible, impossible things. Surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Humble yourself before the Lord and live holy unto Him. Now, if you, if you. Like, try to put that sentence with a little box next to it. You just can't check it throughout the week. It's like this I can't do this. I need the gospel. I need grace to do this. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. I need the truth of God's word to even know how to do this. I need fellowship to do this. I need worship to do this. I need the means that God is giving me. Otherwise, I cannot do this. So this is why when Paul is after behavior, what's he going to do next? He's going to articulate the Gospel. What is he doing in this whole letter? He's not rattling off a list of do's and don'ts. He's after behavior change, but what is he calling people to do? To believe. As Christians, we do not call people to behave. We call people to believe. That is what God has called us to do. Rules, primarily, are for the regenerate. Lower your behavioral expectations from those who do not know Jesus Christ and do not have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Call them to repentance, but tell them how on the, in the world they're going to be able to repent. And it is only if they turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I am writing these things so that you will behave differently. And so I'm going to give you the truth of God's word. That's why he said in chapter 1, verse 10, that there is behavior that is contrary to sound doctrine. get your doctrine right and the behavior will change. Right thinking leads to right living. Right believing leads to right behaving. It's why if you give me and if somebody gives you a room of people for 20 minutes with bad behavior, and your charge is to change their behavior. If I was given a room full of people whose behavior needs to change and I was given 20 minutes with them, I wouldn't spend one minute articulating what is good behavior and what is bad behavior. I would spend all 1,200 seconds articulating the goodness and the grace of God in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would call you to believe. Right? knowing that if you believe, everything changes. So no wonder, when Paul is after a behavior change, this is what he writes. So then, verse 16, this is our message. That's our identity. The household of God. The church of the living God. The pillar and buttress of the truth. And now, what is this truth? Paul, what is this truth that the church is the pillar and buttress of? What is the message that you have given us? Verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Which is probably a play on some words that were commonly said by Ephesian worshippers of Artemis. That You see back in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, where... You remember there's this man who's making these little trinkets, right, that are so that the people in Ephesus can worship their false god. And they don't like Paul because Paul is preaching these false gods are really no gods at all. And so the key chains at the Christian bookstore, they aren't selling anymore. And the owner is really upset and angry. And so a riot ends up taking place. But it's in that passage in Acts chapter 19, verse 28 specifically, where Paul quotes them these people are saying things like great great not is the living god but great is artemis and so paul here is saying not so much great indeed we confess it not artemis is the mystery of godliness when you see the word mystery in in your Bible, it's not mystery in the the murder-she-wrote-Scooby-Doo sense. Mystery is something that has been hidden and now it is revealed. That's typically what is meant by mystery in your Bible. So this mystery of godliness, in other words, this, this godliness, it is something that was hidden But now it has been revealed. It has been revealed through Jesus. Through God's revelation. Through God's Word. And I think John MacArthur is right when he says that this mystery of godliness that has been revealed now is the truths of salvation and righteousness in Christ which produce holiness in believers. And that is what Paul now articulates. This is the truth that we are holding up. This is the, tr- the, the truth that we are promoting and protecting. And he summarizes it in these three couplets, just these six, verse, six phrases. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." It's just a brief summary that Paul gives of the Gospel. This is helpful. We've been doing this ever since. It is helpful to have brief summaries of truth and of the Gospel. This is what a creed is. This is what the Nicene Creed was and is. This is what the Apostles' Creed was and is, who some believe was born out of this text. We may see it in more modern forms like a Gospel tract. And where there's an articulation in a summarized form of the Gospel. Or maybe you learn things when you're a kid like L-D-B-R. Life, death, burial, resurrection. Or you have a, a little John Piper booklet called For Your Joy. Or you have the, the, the Billy Graham tract, I think it is, Steps to Peace with God. Or you have, as, as I tend to think of it, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I mean, we have these helpful ways that are good where the Gospel truth is summarized so that we can memorize this and recall this. And and as we have occasion, we can elaborate. But we've got these basics summarized for us. And here's how Paul chooses the duty. He says, number one, Jesus is He here. Jesus, He, the Son of God, was manifested in the flesh. He speaks of the Incarnation. When we speak of Jesus, we must start with the Incarnation. That the Son of God became a man. The Son of God became a man so that He could die as a man. So that He could be crucified. So the Son of God was manifested in the flesh. John 1.14 And the world became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Jesus became a man. The dual nature of Christ, right? He was completely and totally God. And He was completely and totally man. He lived as a man. He suffered as a man. It would be false to assume that anytime something difficult or painful came along, that Jesus flipped His God switch. I'm just going to be God for now. And I'm going to abandon being a human being so that I'm immune to this pain, maybe, or to this suffering. No, Jesus Christ suffered as a human being. He was totally man and totally God. He didn't get out of any of that suffering. This is why He is our great sympathizer and empathizer. Because of what He endured on our behalf. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Number two, He was vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He was crucified, but He was brought back to life. He was vindicated. Vindicated before all the world. It was proven that he really was who he said he was. That he really did speak truth. He was called by the Pharisees a blasphemer because he claimed to be God and they believed that he wasn't God. And then he was raised from the dead and all of his claims he was vindicated and shown to be right. I mean, there were soldiers who were standing even before Jesus died around the cross who started to see this vindication come through and realized that this was not just some ordinary man on the cross. But the nail, if you will, was put in the coffin when Jesus was raised from the dead and there was an empty tomb. He was vindicated by the Holy Spirit and is our living God. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Number three, He was seen by angels. Now Jesus came, lived as a man, died, was raised from the dead. And then Scripture tells us that Jesus was and is He was put on display as the victor, the ultimate victor put on display for all in the heavenly realms. Just so that you and I and demons and angels would all look at the risen Jesus Christ And just say, wow. 1 Thessalonians says that when Jesus comes back, He comes back in a wild way. And He comes back in this way to be marveled at among those who believe. Jesus Christ has now been at the right hand of the Father. He has been put on display to the heavenly realm. Put on display that God has won. Ephesians 1, 20-21, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the One to come. Right? You see this? You know this. I hope you understand this. God's big agenda, God's big purpose is He is creating so that His creation would marvel at Him and praise Him and worship Him and adore Him. This is the point of creation that God would be glorified. And God's glory, God's beauty, is seen most precisely and most clearly on the cross of Jesus Christ. And now the resurrected Jesus Christ has been put on display. And the angels now are glorifying and honoring God. And believers are praising and honoring and glorifying God, we see through a holy, spiritual eye, Christ seated at the right hand of God. And one day, Jesus will come back. And what does it say? Every tongue, every knee is going to marvel at God. Those who are under His mercy and those who are under His justice. God will be glorified in all. God is into displaying His glory and displaying Himself. Which, by the way, is the most loving thing that God could do because nothing else is better for you to look to. And nothing else is more satisfying. And nothing will bring you more joy. And nothing will bring you more contentment. God would not be loving you if He pointed you to something less satisfying than Himself. And so God says, look at me. Remember, C.S. Lewis said when he first started getting this in God's word, he thought that God sounded like an old grandmother that was in need of compliments. Just look at me, look at me, look at me, worship me, worship me, worship me. Pay attention to me. Think about me. Obey me. Honor me. It's all about me. And this is true. God is clearly communicating that it is all about him. And that we are to look to Him and we are to honor Him. But we see that that is the best and the most loving and the most gracious thing that God can do. If I pointed you to myself and to worship me, I'm going to let you down and I'm going to fail. And I'm miserable and I'm pathetic and I'm terrible. And you would be sorely disappointed. It would be a life of full-on misery for you. But God... says, here I am, on display, worship me. And we do. You've seen by angels, number four and five, he was proclaimed among the nations and he was believed on in the world. He was proclaimed among the nations. Specifically, he was taken to the Gentiles, God was no longer His truth, His revelation, was no longer primarily for Israel. It was for the Gentiles. It was for all of creation. For so the Lord, Acts 13.47, has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But not only is this gospel proclaimed among the nations, but it was and is believed on in the world. So the message of Christ has been and is being proclaimed among the nations and it has been effective. People are believing. People have believed. People will believe. And then finally, out of chronological order, which is interesting, He then says, Jesus, number 6, the Son of God was taken up in glory. Chronologically, He was taken up in glory. He was ascended before. He was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. But Paul wants to end with Jesus being taken up in glory. Now, it's just speculation as to why he chose to end with that truth. But in light of our understanding that God means to be glorified in all the world, and we feel the weight of Jesus reigning in heaven now as the one who's been taken up in glory and splendor. It might not be any wonder that Paul ends by saying, He was taken up in glory. And Jesus, right now, is at the right hand of the Father in glory. And He will return in glory. In conclusion, Remember what Paul's purpose is. It is I'm writing these things so that one may know ought to, so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. And I'm betting that if you're like me, there are there there is behavior in your life that you want to change. There are things that not only things that you have done. That you wish you could erase. You have that. But these are things that you do. It's just bad behavior. It's what you do with your thoughts. It's what you do with your hands. It's what you do with your actions. It's what you do with your words. It's not pleasing to God. You know it's not pleasing to God. It burns your conscience, it brings conviction. And many of these things, right, you find yourself doing over and over and over again. You're like the dog that's described in the Bible that just returns to its vomit. And you do it, and, and afterwards you don't understand why you've done this again. But you fall prey. Some of you have vices in your life right now. And see so you, you tune in when Paul says that he's writing so that behavior may change because you know that you've got some behavior that you would really like to see changed in your life. What are you going to do after reading Paul's words? Are we going to just white knuckle it? Are we, just going to, are we just going to bear down? Maybe you need more accountability partners to lie to. Uh, maybe if you just throw your computer away. Right? Maybe if you just you know, stop driving by this. Maybe if you just surround yourself in this way. Maybe if you just... I hope that's not all that we're going to do if we want to change behavior. I mean it's kind of like mowing the weeds. There's got to be something that we do that's deeper and actually uproots this. Well how does Paul? How does Paul get to behavior change in in, in these people? And how would he counsel us so that our behavior is affected? Well, he would call us to the gospel, wouldn't he? he would say, Look at Jesus manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Holy Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. How much time do you in your fight against sin? How much time do you spend thinking on, contemplating, meditating the mercies of God in your life? Friends, it it is not primarily the heart of duty and the heart of fear that is going to drive your behavior and change your behavior. The behavior will change and that will flow from a heart of gratitude and thankfulness. Where you're not trying to behave differently so that God will accept you, but you're behaving differently because you know that God has accepted you. That is real behavior motivation. There's no more white knuckling at that point. It is birthed out of our affection for God. So how do I deepen that? How do I grow that? How do I, how do I love God more? How do I love God so much that, that sin becomes more and more distasteful? And, friends, just quite simply, I would just encourage you to be in God's Word. To read God's Word. To think about God's Word. To meditate on God's Word. To take the time. To savor the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll close with reading Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. Remember this the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness. Let's pray together. Let's take communion together as the household of God. If you're visiting with us, there's some instructions in your bulletin of how we do communion here. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for Your glory that is seen most clearly in the cross of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank You for sending Your Son to die in our place so that we may be adopted as Your sons and daughters. Thank You for giving us an opportunity today to think about how good You have been to us. God, You know our hearts and You know our minds. You know how easily distracted we are. You know what we're already moving on to and what we're thinking about. You know our schedules today. You know our calendar. You know what is before us that threatens to totally undo everything that is happening right now. Lord, will You protect Your people? Protect Your people from those things in this world which would threaten to take our joy And take our understanding of Your Word and of Your truth and cause us to take it for granted. Make us heavenly-minded people. People who are never detached from Your mercies and Your grace and who are never forgetting how good and great and gracious You have been. Who are immersing ourselves in Your Word and in Your truth and in communion with You. so that we could bring You glory and honor. We love You. We thank You for this Gospel articulation we've read today. We give You all praise and glory and honor. We pray this because of, and in the name of, and for the sake of, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.